section of the lecture is just devoted to the key elements that comprise Zizek's theory of ideology. So today, like, I want to kind of start pushing forward and see if we can get through this first part, because um, we have a lot more to talk about um, as far as... So, but what, what, is elements the what is the subject matter of this first part? So we're going to, I mean, okay, I mean, we're talking, we have to talk about the ideological scapegoat, theft of enjoyment, politics of enjoyment. Then we, I want to talk a little bit about rightist enjoyment versus leftist enjoyment. I would like to touch on the ideology of ego psychology, which that's relevant, believe it or not. Then we need to talk about master signifier and the quilting point which are two ego psychologists. So, I mean, and probably the rest of this is important just for understanding ego psychology critique, but everybody, if you're listening to this right now, then you probably live in a world where you're surrounded by people who do ego psychology all the time, and you probably do as well. And so this is a critique of everything you know and everyone you know. So stay for that. Then, I mean, we got to talk about mass signifier, <laughs> objet petit a, quilting point, objet petit a, quilting point, um, blah, 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 blah. Um, cynical ideology. We, we haven't talked about how Zizek takes cynicism and sees modern ideology as cynical ideology. Um, we got to talk about the materiality of belief, which is a key thing for him. So, so obviously we got to talk about superego symptom and synthome. We got a lot to get through and <laughs> what we're going to have to do is just realize this is going to be an ongoing series because like i i make these bullet points and i'm like oh we can get through all this stuff quickly and then i realize no we can't get through all this stuff quickly yeah i agree not if and and that's what we're trying to do here i mean people could get say oh this is bullshit they just you know they linger on i want a 15 minute video that explains zizek's theory of ideology well good luck obviously somebody can make a a good short video but we're trying to talk it through where it becomes a living theory for listeners where it's not just, okay, I learned, okay, somehow master signifier, OJR, quilting point, uh, theft of enjoyment. You can say all these words, but they're not living concepts because you don't see your own circumstances or your society circumstances through them. And it takes work. It takes a long live in these concepts and that's what we're trying to do here is if anybody wants to get a a, a deeper familiarity with how gzx theory of ideology works that's what we're trying to do and it can't be done in 30 minutes talk about this for a second um two things one i was going to say if we get another like 250 dollars in the next okay um now okay. when we do that stream who knows but these are an ongoing series, and that's the whole point. Now, sometimes we're talking, you know, and um, but it's an ongoing thing in the same way that Lacan did these seminars. Now, most people don't know about Lacan's seminars, but the fact is the guy did not write a lot of millions of notes, and then he would go and he would talk. And he would go, he, there were these public attended, um, you know, things where it's not just his students, right, who are learning psychoanalysis because he was teaching people how to do it. Um, philosopher, sociologist. That's right. Hippolyte and Derrida and, you know, all these different people, Der you know, are in there. Quattari, you know, and, you know, the place was packed out. I think 
Claude Levi Strauss was in there. And there was a lot of, you know, it was like 100 people, right? Well, we are presuming the same sort of ragtag team. We're presuming the same 100 ragtag oddballs from all over the world who are coming to our seminar ones. We've got the Baudrillard one. These are all ongoing. And so, like, if you're in, if you're in for it, you like it. If you're actually one of the people who's like, who likes it. You're not like these people online who are like, oh, it's long. It's not edited. Well, then, awesome. You're here for it. Because, I mean, the fact is, is like what me and Mikey and then also like Anne, independent of Mikey, have, has just been like, why don't we just like have a theory church? I don't even care. Like once a week, you know, once a week, it's a lecture and people take it seriously. Um, but that's what we already have going right here. And so that's why I'm getting, that's why I'm excited to see someone like Brian in the chat to know that Anne's, you know, planned her night around it and taken the time. There's a bunch of people who've chosen here. Yeah. There's a lot of people who've chosen to do this. And I think that that's, um, that to me is really exciting because obviously like that's why we're doing it is because we expect that it is something people will appreciate because we appreciate it also. And, you know, it's something we wouldn't get the same thing from it if we were just having our own personal conversations, but we've had hundreds, hundreds, hundreds of these conversations already. So the thing is, is like, we, you know, we, we do do these, but they are obviously different for us when we do them with you. And so we do need you, right? You're all a part of it. And so we appreciate you all being along. There you go. That's okay. We good to go? Yeah. Go back in. Let's let's go back in for the last stretch. Okay. So I just want I like I I this this part in his book was so great. I just I want to you you were talking about earlier. You're talking about the real traumatic element of where the commodity comes from. Then I was talking about okay, you know we we're talking. Uh, I mentioned. Oh, well, Todd in Capitalism and Desire. And then that's when the break in the conversation came. I just want to read this real quick. So this is uh, this is part of this chapter four from Capitalism and Desire. So this is a note I wrote here. But <clears throat> if it sucks to be a worker in America, France, Germany, Japan, South Korea, etc., then what it's like, what is it like to be a worker in the Congo? Yes, consumer society has made it seem that capitalism has come to treat its workers better and better, but this view depends on extremely limiting one's vision of what's happening around the world. It's true that things have gotten better, relatively speaking, for some workers in some countries, which is why McGowan says one would rather be a young woman toiling in a garment manufacturing in the 1840s Manchester than a child mining coltan in the Congo in the 2000s. At this, at its purest, capital has no problem in working young children to death if this means greater increases in profit. The logic of capital will never think twice about whether or not it's immoral to eat your children alive. Walmart is responsible for horrible working conditions in China, India, and Vietnam. The low prices at Walmart depend on the misery of workers in those countries. Apple also forces workers into terrible conditions in order to produce iPods, iPads, and iPhones. This is a two-step process. One, the mining of raw materials, and two, the assembly of the various devices. Now, I'm quoting Todd. Hmm. 
This is on page 101, Capitalism and Desire. According to the Enough Project, a group fighting crimes against humanity, Apple has historically one of the worst. Uh, Apple it was historically one of the worst culprits among electronic manufacturers who relied on minerals mined in the Congo. The four minerals that are most essential for electronic products include columbite, tantalite, or coltan, for tantalum, cassiterite, for tin, wolframite for tungsten and gold. Tantalum, tin, tungsten, and gold each play important roles in the functioning of electronic devices like the iPod and iPhone. Because the mines were under the control of various militia groups, they could enforce the most deplorable working conditions imaginable. 48 hour consecutive or 48 consecutive hours in unlit gas-filled tunnels, child labor or child slave labor, rape of workers, death for the failure to achieve mining quotas, and so on. Despite the geographical distance that separates the retail outlets selling iPhones and the mines in the Congo, these two sites enjoy an intimate connection. The sacrifice of workers in the Congo is the condition of possibility for the consumer's enjoyment of the iPhone, though this consumer must remain able to disavow any knowledge of this sacrifice. How are they able to disavow it? The fetishistic mechanism of the commodity, right? Oh, and now I'm, he does, Todd doesn't say that, but I'm adding that. It's commodity fetishism that allows right. us to turn a blind eye to what's going on. Also, I just want to add, and I told Todd this, I wish he had, <laughs> wish he had quoted Kanye West's words. I know everybody can give <laughs> Kanye shit right now, but... Kanye, and I'm not saying, Kanye has never been one of my favorite rappers, but I always find myself respecting certain lyrics. Like, there's lines and, and there's verses he's written that are really, really good. And so there is um, his you know, verse the from... Off the top. Oh, you're going you're to show us an example right now. Well, well I'm, I'm not going to read, I'm not going to sit here and like rhyme the verse or anything. I just want to say, if you want like a rap verse that actually encapsulates this. He does an incredible job. He's a real wordsmith on Diamonds from Sierra Leone, the remix version of the song with Jay-Z. Just listen to Kanye's verse on there. Like, it's really, really good. So, okay. Well, that's all I wanted to say. Todd talks about this in Capitalism and Desire, and it's definitely worth reading. So, with that being said, let's get back to the lecture. All I want to say here, because we spent a lot of time on universality of the Hegelian sort and antagonism, contradiction, opposition. Okay, we've seen how Slavoj and Todd differentiate themselves on the topic of the universal. For the for Slavoj, it's the antagonism. For for Todd, it's the lack, the universal lack. But the main question is: Okay, if they have this this difference in universality, do they also have a difference in how they conceive of ideology? Again, sort of. For Slavoj, ideology obfuscates the universal antagonism, whereas for Todd, ideology conceals the universal lack. But Todd would also say that ideology makes the lack contingent and fillable. Ideology convinces us that our lack can be filled once and for all. 
an ideological lack is I don't have any money. Since having money uh, wouldn't actually fill my ontological lack. So the point is, I'm always going to be a lacking, desiring subject. There is a constitutive lack that makes me the type of being that I am. Nevertheless, ideology will convince me that I would be whole or full, ontologically speaking, if some particular lack of mine was filled. If not, I would still be a lacking, desiring subject. But that's what ideology does, is it tells us, like, here's here's what it would take for you to actually be whole, right? And then it holds out a phantasmatic scenario as, like, this is the promise of your or the solution to your lap. Sure. So ideology so Todd would say the I excuse me. Ideology is the justification of our lack. It's the explanation why we lack. Whereas fantasy for Todd is ideology's solution to our lack. Okay. So that's that's how they differ. I think they're more similar than different. But hopefully this has helped kind of pinpoint exactly what Slavoj is getting at in his theory of ideology. I think it kind of helps to juxtapose it to Todd's, even though they're very similar. Because, again, the whole point is for both Slavoj and Todd, what ideology does is obfuscate the real of society. That traumatic, uh, inconsistent aspect of society all right okay so that brings that part i mean uh, this section of the first section to an end now we're gonna i just and we've kind of talked about it but let's talk about the ideological scapegoat because just in passing because we've already basically talked about it that's the whole point so in a social in a society in a social order for for zizek the point is, there's always gaps. And when he talks about gaps, he's talking about that real dimension. He's talking about the the places within that social order that are inconsistent, contradictory, antagonistic. And the point is, those deadlocks make it where society can't do certain things. Think about it like this. The rules of basketball determine that oh, you can't have two balls on the court at one time. Well, it's not impossible to think of a change in the rules that would allow two balls to be in play on the court at the same time. It would change the structure of the game. The the game would be radically different if if there was two balls in play at the same time. And we could say it would even change it so much as to make it a different game. But it's it's not like ontologically or physically impossible for two balls to be in play at the same time. It's, it's symbolically impossible within the rules and configurations of basketball as we know it. Well, that's what happens say in capitalist society. There are certain things that we could say are possible. For example, you walk in somewhere, you, you pick up use values, which is to say food, clothing, etc., and you walk out without paying for them, right? That's not it's not like metaphysically impossible that that could happen. It's the rules, laws, protocols of capitalist society. It's symbolic structure that makes that not happen, not possible. 
And so all of these points in a society of contradiction and possibility, et cetera, we, Zizek talks about them as the gaps in the symbolic texture, the gaps of the real. And so the point is, obviously, these points of contradiction or inconsistency are weaknesses within the symbolic order. It doesn't want us to focus on them. It doesn't want us to fixate on them. It wants us to ignore them. And it does it does this for Zizek by giving us a scapegoat. It's as if, like, you know how you, we talk about, like, eclipses, like the eclipse of the moon, right? It's as if there's, at the points in the symbolic order where we, we come to these gaps, these voids. I mean, it's weird. I know. Is it a contradiction or is it a void? All of these are ways Zizek has of talking about these points of the real that must remain out of sight for the social order to continue to reproduce itself. And so it's as if the social order, or what we should say is the ideology of the social order will cover these gaps, these points of inconsistency with an ideological scapegoat. It's how it covers these. And so, for example, why is there so much poverty? Oh, it's not because of the structure of capitalist society. It's not because of the logic at play within the accumulation of capital and wage labor. It's because people are lazy, lazy people, or immigrants have come in and destabilized working conditions. And so the citizens of the country now feel like, oh, oh, if if only the, the immigrants hadn't shown up. It's the whole thing from the South Park. They took his job. Uh, no, the problem isn't that they took his job. The problem is the structure of wage labor itself. But it doesn't, the system obviously doesn't want us to zero in on those structural dynamics. And so it provides a scapegoat. And the key is that it libidinalizes it it turns it into a sublime object, which, again, sublime object almost seems like it would be a complementary thing, almost. Like, oh, it's an idealized thing. But sublimity has a, a deeper tension in it because Zizek using the word out of the Kantian Hegelian tradition, right? And then that's something I want to address, just not right now, because that takes us way far off path. But I do want to talk about the whole difference between Kantian sublime, Hegelian sublime. Oh, good. Down it further on. Yeah. Um, I mean, because I, I mean, I've heard people already say things about the sublime where like, oh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll say that they disagree with your, you know, this point about the sublime object. Um, and it's like, I don't even understand the sublime object yet. So I hope that everybody, everybody knows, at least in this conversation, at this point, in our conversations on Zizek, I don't know what the sublime object is, and I've read the goddamn book. So, um, And it's because the word sublime throws everybody off. Yeah. That's so part of it. And well, I'm all, okay. So I also just have a hard time remembering things when I've only read them once. But we'll, we'll, get, you know, we'll get to it. So here's the point. So, okay, you have Kant and Hegel, who have different concepts of the sublime, even though they're related. And then Lacan in seminar seven, which is one of Lacan's most famous seminars. This is the, the seminar called the ethics of psychoanalysis. 
when it comes to seminars, there's a basic agreement with Lacanians that the four most important ones are 7, 11, 17, and 20. Now, obviously other Lacanians will disagree, but if you ask most Lacanians, most of them will agree to that. Um, there's a lot of, I mean, out, you know, entire books can be written on each of these seminars. 17, 11. 7, 7, 11, 17, 20. Now, here's, the, here's why. 7 is really the, I mean, and look, he talks about jouissance from 7 all the way up. I mean, I mean, he mentions it before, but with seven, he really enters in to his concept of jouissance as we know it. And so seven's really about jouissance, at least is how he was conceptualizing it at, at that point in his seminar. The uh, seminar 11, that's his four fundamental concepts. That's where he's talking about the unconscious and drive and transference and repetition, these key psychoanalytic, especially Lacanian concepts, and Seminar 11's where he really, really, really starts to develop the concept of objet petit all in Seminar 11. So, I mean, roughly you could say Seminar 7, jouissance, Seminar 11, objet petit all, and then Seminar 17, that's the four discourses. That's had a huge influence on people. Definitely. And then Seminar 20 is where he does the graph of sexuation, the masculine position versus the feminine position. That's had huge influence on people. So those are really four, the four big ones, so to speak, as far as the ones that have had the most influence on thinkers and, and theorists. So the point, though, is in seminar seven, this is where Lacan develops his concept of Das Ding. And this is another, like, I don't want to go into it now because it just, it becomes <laughs> its own discussion. But again, suffice it to say, Das Ding can be interpreted as a forerunner to Objet Petit A. The question is, well, are they identical? Are they different? Doesn't matter. Here's the point. He's thinking in terms of a position of sublimity of of the sublime position that okay retroactively once we have been socialized it's like oh there was something outside of law outside of the social order that was this per you just permeated with jouissance right now the easy interpretation of dos ding is it's the mother's body right so the child prior to language that's a kind of symbiotic relationship with the mother, one characterized by immediate jouissance. Now, Zizek doesn't go for this reading. Most Lacanians don't go for this reading, even though the common wisdom is that Dosting is the mother's body. Mm. What it actually is, is it's the empty space left behind once it, one has been integrated into the symbolic order. So what does this mean? It means that of course, you're still around your mom once you've been socialized. Once you once you adopt language, law, social protocols, etc., your mom's still there. And so, the point is, yeah, your mom is still there, but she she's not in the position of Das Ding. She's not in this position of sublime, excessive enjoyment, right? And so, 
it's as if this incredibly pre-linguistic, pre-social, pre-conceptual, intense, sublime, euphoric jouissance is not actually anything but an empty position. But things can get put in this position. This is like when you fantasize, oh, if, if I could just be with this person or whatever. This is what, for Lacan, sublimation is. And when I have to sublimate it into a different acceptable form of it, right? Like that's not, we're not using sublimation in the typical way here. It just means the becoming sublime, the positioning of something in the sublime position of excessive enjoyment the sublime object and the, oh, and go ahead. sorry sorry so sublimation is the is the positioning of something as an ordinary object could it is it does it just so it's not just objects it's also people or ideas right it's basically any referent can be any referent can be positioned in the sublime position of das ding the thing Right. It's even funny how when we talk about something that we repeat all the time, something that is a source of repetitive enjoyment, we call it our thing. Right. Right. It's a way of like, we don't know what we're saying, but it's a, it's a weird, like if you read it from a Lacanian perspective, it's like we're tapped into some sort of activity that is a source of enjoyment for us. And so, um, is that when Lacan defines, hold on, is that, to, is that the same as to say that? That's when it's got that it factor, like like the in the phallus post. Yeah, the, the, the act factor, the it factor. Yes, it's got it. I don't know what it is about this person, but they have it, right? And so, Lacan in Seminar Seven defines sublimation as raising an ordinary object to the dignity of the thing, which is to say. It's seeing a thing as permeated with excessive enjoyment. Here's the point. So when you think sublime, when we're talking in this context, you have to link it to extreme excessive jouissance. Okay. Now, this can be a, this can be enticing to us, or it can also be absolutely reprehensible, worthy of hatred, utterly disgusting. So on the one hand, if if something is positioned in the sublime position, we can go, oh, if I had that thing, if I could get hold of that thing, I would have full enjoyment. I would be whole, right? That's more of the enticing dimension of it. But it's just as easy to say, oh, see, I lack because that thing is hoarded all of the jouissance and it has an unfair monopoly on it and it's it's selfish and it's stingy and it wants all the jouissance for itself. And so it gets to monopolize and concentrate all of the jouissance in itself, right? That's the sense of, that the sublime object of ideology functions. You think, uh, you know, the Jew or, or, I mean, it, it can be anybody, but, but his example is how the be, Jew functioned in Nazi Germany. It could be the SJW, right? Um, Honestly, yeah, it could be it, like for a lot of American conservatives right now with I'm doing the cringe compilations and all of this, right? The SJW could, in their mind, be somebody of extreme enjoyment. Like they get an, a, an extreme excessive access to jouissance that 
the person on the right doesn't get to have. The weird thing is simultaneously you can do the same thing. Like the Trump supporter gets it gets to have a, you know a certain monopolistic relationship to Zwizans because they get to be they do the racist shit and they do they transgress all the rules and there's a very strong sense in which we link transgression to access to Zwizans. Lacan himself in seminar seven identifies like what is on the side of transgression like what when you transgress the law what do you get you get jouissance and so you can like two people neither which have any privileged access to jouissance can both view each other as the one who has privileged access to jouissance for different reasons so the sjw if let's say you're lgbtq or you're a big supporter of lgbtq then somebody who's very conservative could go, oh, see, you're transgressing heteronormative standards. You get to have excessive enjoyment. You, you know, you get to do different things with gender or sexuality that m me as a, you know, heteronormative person, I don't get to. So it's a, what we're doing is people unconsciously calculate how much enjoyment somebody else gets. So, and then obviously somebody on the liberal left can do the same thing like I was talking about with somebody on the right. Oh, you transgress all of these basic laws we now have agreed on. Therefore, you have privileged access. And the point is neither one has any privileged access to enjoyment. But they think the other one has it. Okay. And, and obviously this isn't... I don't know. I don't think that that's... So there's obviously people who are left or right who know the stereotype and know the stereotype is real but also know people who break the stereotype don't get seduced so much by this imaginary. Well, here's the thing. I work with guys, men and women every day who are, some are conservative, some are liberal and they don't, I don't see this tendency in any of them. They don't do this to the other side right. now, but I've met people in real life who do. So I'm not saying that doing this is baked into either position. I don't think it is. But what you find is that, it can go like any any side is in a sense capable of this. Why? Because every symbolic position has its own. There are inconsistencies on the liberal left. There are inconsistencies on the conservative right. And the point is, you can always obfuscate those inconsistencies with with some sublime object, some something that has all that has monopolized all the enjoyment. Mm. Cool. But it's not necessarily the case that a conservative or a liberal is actually doing this. Okay. That's that's a perfect... I mean, and here's the thing. Marxists can do this. Obviously, fa I mean, that's why Zizek goes with Nazi Germany. The greatest example of this are straight up like fascist social formations. Right. But the point is, you can, I don't whether it's Marxist, whether it's liberal, whether it's conservative, whether it's fascist, whatever you can find this mechanism of scapegoating in all various forms of political identity. Right. And it's not always like, I don't know, it, it, there might be an argument for it even um, to some degree, but that's, you know, something we'll get into later. I want to say just, I don't want to, I feel like you're still diving in here. So at some point we're going to listen to the message Anne shared uh, where she uh, catches us up to date in the mod chat. So um, the mod chat's just okay. the 
it's a the mod chat is a position that people can get involved with. Uh, there's a meme gang going on. I don't know if anybody saw it on the meme reel, but you just got to email theoryplebe at gmail.com. Anyway, that's a quick little plug for that. But if do you want to listen to that right now, or do you want to say a few more things before we get into that? Well, I'll just I'll just say this real quick. So, the whole point of the ideological scapegoat or the sublime object is that this object is a thief of enjoyment, and the theft of enjoyment is not something Lacan talked about. It's one of Zizek's own original ideas, one of his best, and for him, it's it's understanding why racial oppression or scapegoating all of these things crop up in various forms of societies and the theft of enjoyment is just what we were talking about where you posit that some other thing has hoarded or monopolized all of the enjoyment in society and that is what has caused all of the social problems and that is the ideological mechanism is because first off this referent whoever it is doesn't have privileged access to jouissance. Second, even if they had some sort of privileged access to jouissance, which they don't have, they're still not the cause of all of the systemic structural problems of society, but that's the sublime object, this this concentration of monopolized, stolen, threatening enjoyment is what covers over the gap in the symbolic order. So this is why jouissance or the real, this is, I told you in the first lecture, the book could, it's called sublime object of ideology, but it could also be called the real of ideology or the jouissance. What conceals the gaps in the symbolic order is not actually some, some false consciousness, which is to say a misunderstanding at the conceptual level. It's the positing of a sublime object, cetera, has taken all my enjoyment. So it's jouissance, or how jouissance is phantasmatically posited within us that obfuscates the structural deadlock. All right, that makes sense. That's good. And so, so here's the thing. This is actually a good stopping point for the lecture, but... In an attempt to bring in new people to the world of philosophy and theory while building on relationships already established, we are doing a countrywide tour of the United States this fall. What's up, guys? It's Anna Dave. Are we coming to a city or a town near you? Do you think there is a venue or audience in your local region that would be interested in a lecture or facilitated discussion about existentialism, critiques of therapism, PMC ideology, self-help, introduction to philosophy, or the time-energy critique of any of those things. This speaking and discussion facilitation tour will include the Pacific Northwest in mid-August, the Kansas City, Missouri area late August or early September, Philadelphia at the beginning of October, and really we're going to be all over the area there, hopefully, so get in contact with us if you think that we should come visit your state. Phoenix, Arizona, mid-October, and SoCal, especially San Diego, late October. I say especially San Diego because we already have our guide for the San Diego region. 
What's the difference between a host, a guide, and a volunteer, you ask? Well, thanks for asking, actually. The volunteer role is for people who want to put up posters or in other ways promote the events that will be occurring in their town or city. Whereas the host might have a guest bedroom, guest house, or a place that we can park our van so we can sleep in our van. We need to know if you would have like bathroom facilities or anything like that. And so the form on the website is where you can tell us what you have to offer. Guiding on the other hand though, people who love to guide take a lot of pride in their local knowledge. A good example of that would be Michael Downs when I visited him in Raytown, Missouri. And he took me into Kansas City and we had barbecue and he took me to the mall and to all these other landmark places from his life growing up there. Um, but a more recent example would be my friend Michael in Poland who took us around Katowice, Poland and basically gives a historical and sociological analysis of everything. And it was amazing. It was, it was one of the coolest things we've ever experienced. And it made us realize some people just want to provide the space and privacy, whereas other people want to take you out and show you around. And so if you're interested in being a volunteer, host, or guide, we have a special form for that. So please fill out your information and uh, get in contact with us as soon as possible so we can fit you into the schedule, because we'll love to meet you, touch base with the local community, and if you don't think anyone else in your area is interested in the things that you're interested in, if you don't think anyone else is into this stuff, well, we might be able to surprise you. When I saw that poster, Bolgrillard in Boise fucking Idaho, are you kidding me? It was virtually an, an answer to an unspoken prayer, you know, really was. And I just couldn't believe that somebody was interested in the things that I was interested in that I had been interested in for years and had kind of given up on in, in futility. I'd labored in solitude for so long, I had no one to talk to about it, no one to bounce ideas off. This tour is going to bring together a lot of people who want to be based in text with the people they're in conversation with. and. Yeah, I think it's going to be a fantastic year. The only other thing that I want to say is that Michael Downs' first book is going to be published by Theory Underground really soon here. I've got another book coming out really soon here. These books will be spread throughout the United States on this tour. So I'm hoping to be able to do some actual book launch events at various bookstores. Outside of that, I guess the last thing that I would say is that Michael Downs is gearing up to teach For They Know Not What They Do by Slavoj Žižek. We're putting out all these introduction videos and other interviews related to the topic of Hegel, Lacan, Žižek because we want to give people an accessible and sturdy basis in the discourse. The problem is, is that Michael Downs is very busy having to work at a wage slave job. And so if you want to help in freeing Mikey, make sure to go to his Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the dangerous baby and make a donation. Thank you. I would be remiss to close this out without a quick shout out to our patrons and our anonymous donors. Thank you so much for the donations already. We've only been around for a month. We already got over $3,000 in donations. Um, and so thank you and uh, stay tuned for the app, which is on its way. There will be a Fury Underground app 
So the current setup is that it is a social media site built around courses where you can suppose that people who are involved in the discussions have a shared interest in the same or similar texts and where you can assume in a lot of the discussions that, yeah, people have read the stuff that you're reading, uh, that you're bringing into dialogue. And so, uh, for instance, the idea of the university by Carl Jaspers, dedicated forum. Slavoj Zizek's for later on what they do, dedicated forum. And then as people take the course over the years, new people will be coming into that forum. And so if you get in there early, you'll be able to see how the conversation evolves. And as new people add into the conversation, it'll bring back memories and like things that you want to work through, questions that you had with the first time that you read the text. And so I'm really excited for this. The reason I've built this website is because I think that this is what's lacking in so many other spaces, is that ability to return, to be able to communicate after the fact and in a sustained way on a platform that's not attention grabby and annoying like Discord. And so stay tuned because there is an app on the way. Thank you to our donors. If you want to donate, go to theory-underground.com forward slash support. Thank you.